Father and Lord God, we just come before you today and we look to be reminded that the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. That the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And that all of our vindication in this life is found in the cross. There's no need to convince anyone of anything. For we have one Lord, one Father who has found us innocent of our sins. In the completed work of Christ imputed to our account. And so today we stand here acknowledging that you have given us a message that actually puts to death all human wisdom, even our own wisdom, and a message that puts to death our own ego. For in the message of the word of the cross, there is no boasting in flesh, but all who may boast, let them boast in the Lord. Today we acknowledge you and we boast in you. We praise you, Lord God, for what you have done, what you have done, not what we have done, what you have done. And so let us rest in peace this morning upon the completed work of the cross of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God for those who are being saved. Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you turn in them to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. We're going to be looking from 1.18 through 2. 1 through 5. Many of us know the embarrassment of the cross. Many of us have crosses. We have cross jewelry. We have cross t-shirts. We have crosses on our car. We have bumper stickers on our car. We're not embarrassed to decorate our walls with crosses. So we're not really embarrassed by the symbol of the cross. What we are really embarrassed by often is the word of the cross. The message that foolishness or the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of the world. That the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of all mankind. And we know what it is to be ashamed to proclaim to our friends, to our family, to our workmates. That every system of thought is confounded by the cross of Jesus Christ. Look with me, if you would, at the passage this morning. Paul begins by saying, for the word of the cross is folly. The word for there, it connects to the passage that precedes it. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs 
and Greeks seek wisdom. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I want to take a look at this passage in detail and give some thoughts on it. Look, if you would, at verse 18. The beginning of the passage begins with the word for. And whenever we see that word for, it is a link between one thought and another thought in the Greek text. He is explaining that what is about to come is intimately connected with what he has already been talking about. What has he been talking about? In this particular passage, Paul has written a letter. This is an actual letter that a man sat down and wrote and sent it to a church. And this letter was addressing an issue that some of the church members had written to Paul. Chloe's house, her particular her particular group of people, was concerned that the church was making much of men and were dividing over men rather than uniting over Christ. She says here, he says here, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. That means they're arguing. And by the way, the word quarrel, when you see that in the English, the word quarrel means trying to show that the other person is in the wrong. They're they're trying to vindicate themselves. And what they're arguing about is this. He says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Paul, of course, is the author of this letter. He's also the father of these churches, many of these churches. Or I follow Apollos, who was a very gifted speaker. When we encounter Apollos in the book of Acts, we find that he is incredibly good at speaking. He was a great orator. But he had to be taken aside by Priscilla and Achilla... And explained the deeper and more intricate way of the message of the gospel. In other words, Apollos at the very beginning of his ministry was saying nothing well. He was saying nothing. But he was saying it well. And that's what a lot of our pastors today are good at. They say nothing. But they do it so well. Because they talk like this. And they learn to put their fingers together. 
so that you pay attention to their ability to speak. Stop. Think before you amen. Some people said, you know, so-and-so got more amens than you got. Fine. I want you to not amen. I want you to sit and think. And when you leave here, I want you to go to the Bible and see if what I said was true. Now, I haven't always been like that. I can tell you this passage this week cracked me right in the skull. Because I want to be applauded. I want it to be about my gift of preaching when I get up here. I want people to be proud of me. And Paul says, not even me. Some say I follow Paul. Some, some say I follow Apollos or Cephas, who is Peter, who was the, the chief of the, the apostles. If, if they were aligned with these men, that meant that they were, they were really important. And still others, the real sanctimonious crowd, come, I follow Christ. And, and we think when we read that, that they're the real Christians. No, they're not. Paul says, because even those who are saying, I follow Christ, are dividing. They're all in their little factions. They're all appealing to their man. And Paul asks a question. He asks very simply, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He even says, I thank God that I didn't baptize none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Why? Because if he had baptized them, they would have said, I was baptized by Paul. That means my salvation is better than yours. You know, I meet so many people. This church has been around for so long. This building has been around for, gosh, I don't know, a very long time. All I know is that when they built it, it was $300,000. That's what it cost to build this. Can you imagine that? You can't buy a home. One little, one little bedroom for $300,000 in this city. That beautiful baptismal pool. And so people have come around. We've had people walk into this church and they say, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. One guy came in and said, can I, can I put it on the historical registry? And uh, we, we found that there were certain, um, you know, certain red tape that we couldn't join with. Nevertheless, but I meet people all the time who've, been, who've come through Northwest. And one of the things that I've heard so many people say is, I was baptized in that baptismal pool. As if the baptismal pool, they, 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 what they're doing is they're collecting an experience. Oh, I was baptized. That pool's so beautiful. You know where Jesus was baptized? Jordan River. You know what they did in the Jordan River? They did everything in the Jordan River. Or I had the priests sprinkle holy water. You know what that water is? It's probably not even Zephyr Hills. They went over to the tap, put it in a bowl. Paul said, don't collect this because you're collecting things instead of collecting the message. Because it's not me, and it's not where you're baptized, and it's not who you follow, except the message of the gospel, the word of the cross. Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent, eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, I want to explain what that means. So, here we are at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. This division that Paul says we really ought to be looking at <clears throat> is a division between those who are being saved, <clears throat> excuse me, and those who are perishing. The church does not need to be divided amongst churches, what church we go to, or what pastor we follow, or where we were baptized. The real division is, are you being saved? And if you're being saved, you're not being saved by any of these men, by, their, by any of these men and their 
abilities. You're not being saved by being a member of this church. But you're being saved by what Paul says is the word of the cross. So that the message is separated from the messenger. It is the message, not the messenger. So Paul sees a dichotomy. It is this word of the cross that divides. And it should not be the case that in our churches we're dividing over pride of our leaders. And Paul says this is a present reality. He says, note this, that the word of the cross is folly. The word there, folly, means it's stupid. It, it means t- to some they just don't understand it. It is unwise. And in that particular context, the Greeks, Corinth is, is in the Peloponnesus Island. It is on the, uh, or peninsula. It is on the, the, it is in the center of Greece and of the center of uh, of wisdom and philosophy and thinking, and they made much about this. And Paul says, when we bring to you a crucified Savior, you find it stupid. When he went to Athens, which is very close in, in geographical proximity to Corinth, when he went to Athens and he preached, the, the people were listening, they were engaged, he came in, he talked about how they were really religious, very nice, moved in, and he, and he, yes, he used some technique here. And then the Bible tells us that when he spoke about the resurrection, they began to mock. This idea of a resurrection, this idea of a cross to Greeks was too far-fetched to be any real wisdom. After all, the cross is a device of execution Not a throne of victory. Paul says it does two things. To those who are perishing, it is folly to them. That is, it is a continuous thorn in the side. We expect here in America that when we go into our voting booth, that with our votes, we might make Christianity more palatable to those who are not believers. But the Bible says it is perpetual folly. It will never be pleasing to those who are perishing. It's stupid. We are wasting our time here. We should be at, uh, what is the stadium now? Hard Rock Stadium, getting drunk, wearing stupid t-shirts, and barbecuing food. We should be on our sailboats. Anybody have a sailboat, by the way? I saw somebody raise their hand. I want an invitation. We should be... At the beach. I mean, for heaven's sake, we live in Miami. We should, we should still be sleeping. Because after all, last night we went to Wynwood and we drank some trendy tea that cost us our kids college education. This is a waste of time here. To the world, it is perpetual folly. But to those who are perishing, it is, Paul says, it is the power of God. But can you, can you be more different? Talk about two extremes. It's not a false message to a true message. It's a message that is to be wasted versus a message that is power. That it is power. It gives life. We are talking about the God who when he says, let there be light, the things that were not become the things that are. Are so that this message of the cross, not the messenger, not the not the arena that we're in, it is the sheer message of a cross and what happened on that cross that saves us and is real. It really is real. I don't know how else to say that. When God gave his name to Moses, he said, I am who I am. You might could say that on that day, he gave every other God and every other world system a name as well. Those who are not. You can pray 
all you want to a statue. And you can kiss it, and you can make the sign of the cross before you hit a baseball, and you can put, by the way, I almost took a picture, but then I would have had a busted bumper sticker. I saw this, I saw this truck driving down the street with the blood of Jesus bumper sticker. And, of course, the muffler was falling on the ground. And I wanted to take a picture of that so bad because we want a talisman. But it's not in a talisman. It's not a lucky rabbit's foot. It's a message. And do you believe the message? Because if you want real power, it's not what you put on your car. It's what's in your heart. It's actually how you drive your car. The blood of Jesus covers your car if you let me over. Blood of Jesus covered my car. Drive, idiot. That sounds like someone I know. I won't say who it is. Who, who said am I pointing at you? <laughs> if you're guilty, man, I, uh, <laughs> I was actually pointing over your Anyway. Um, so this word of the cross, it divides us. So I want you to think about something. God has put you in a very special class today if you're a Christian. You've been divided from the world. And here's what he's put you in the special class of. And, and I wish I would hear more pastors say this today. Come on, come on, all of you, come on in. Welcome to the class for fools. At least from the perception of the world. The world hates Jesus because they're perishing. And it's foolishness. And you too are no better than Jesus. If you love Jesus, you're going to be hated by the world. This division is not a mere perception, it's a reality, and it's a constant reality. And so we are being saved, so it's power to those who are being saved. It's power today. It was power when you gave your life to Jesus as a young woman or as a child. It was power then. It's power today. It is the power that will be the power when you're on your deathbed. It is the power of the message of the cross, that while your body decays, it is the message of the cross that preserves your soul and gives you hope for the new body when Jesus returns this is the power of God and then Paul says not only that it's been written about I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart that is Paul quoting scripture whenever you see it Compressed like that, it's usually a, a quote that comes from the Old Testament. And in this particular instance, it's, from, it's from, uh, taken from uh, uh, Isaiah. And it is a passage that shows us that this is the God. You know, some people talk about the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And Paul says, no, this God who is of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And it has always been his goal to make nothing of the flesh. That is, the, that is the, the conflict between human beings and God right now. The conflict is that we are still holding on to worldly things. Our worldly wisdom. Our flesh. We are still proud of ourselves. We're still proud of our accomplishments. We still think that we're going to find meaning in this light from things. And from political ideologies. And from philosophies. And from the next book on Oprah's book club. We think that that's where the real meaning is from. Or from the wisdom of the shop owner. But the real power. God has always made it this way. That everything that man can think up. That is the wisest of the wise. And I will say this. Give kudo and credit to Charles Darwin. It was the wisest thing. There is no other game in town if there's no other God. And Charles Darwin gets the credit that all species arose from spontaneous generation. And began a process of evolution that took millions of years. From which we all have a common ancestor of a single celled organism that happened way back when by chance. There's no other game in town. That's the wisest theory of the origin of life that anyone could 
think of if there is no God. But in God and in his word, in his message, it confounds the wisest thing we could think of. With what? The foolish message that God said. And it was. This has always been God's work. Paul is saying this is what he's doing now in the cross. Paul's linking this, Jews, be, be ready. Greeks, be ready because this has always been God's plan to give us a Messiah on a cross. The wisdom of the world is powerless at producing true knowledge of God. Look at verse 20. He says, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? The, that, the word scribe connects to the Jews. Uh, they were known for copying the word of God. We, we know that the way that scribes took their, their, their life very seriously, many of them, just some of the things that they would do, their, their job was simply devoted to writing the word of God and to knowing the word of God. They were sort of the uh, lawyers of the Old Testament. Certain scribes, uh, scribes would, when they would copy a text, that the top of the, the, the page or the piece of whatever they were writing on, vellum or eventually papyrus, when they were writing and they wrote the word, at the if, the, if the word at the top of the page was, uh, you know, uh, the, and the word at the bottom of the page was is, they had to make sure that on their copy, with everything in there, that that was the exact same, the and is, on their copy. They were very serious about it. When they got to the name of Yahweh, they didn't have vowels, and they would, they would actually use a quill, and whenever they wrote the word Yahweh, they would throw that quill away and get another quill and write it because they said his name was too holy. These are very serious people. They knew what they were doing. They were technically proficient. And Paul asked the question, where are you? In other words, not where are you, but where will your defense be before God? But first he asked, where's the wise? Yeah, these people who pontificate and who philosophize, where are they before the wisdom of God? And he says, where is the debater? That's what Greeks did. In, in dialogue, the word dialogue means two in, in a conversation, and the goal in Greek dialogue was to pursue truth. So the two would debate, one interlocutor and another interlocutor, and they would debate. And the goal was, if we could find truth, both of us had to get rid of our positions and embrace truth. Even if it was a synthesis, or if it just went straight up, and it was my view you had to adopt. But the goal was truth. And they would do this. This is what the Oropagus was in Mars Hill. They would go and they would talk about life and they would debate. Today it's Fox News. The Democrats if they wouldn't. The Republicans if they wouldn't. And what, what happens when you leave? You walk away going, oh man, I just wasted 10 minutes of my life. He's lying and he's lying. And guess what? It's never going to be solved. Oh, we got to give more money to poverty and less money about war and the poor you always have with you. So that means you don't care about the poor? No, it just means you're telling me that we can solve poverty and I'm saying I ain't buying it. I'm saying do what we can. And you're telling me over here that we need money for war, but the Bible tells us it is it's God who upholds a nation. Puts kings on their throne. But I want to show you this. For since the wisdom, he says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, you cannot find God in the wisdom of of man. It's not there. Yeah, I'm sure you love Tony Robbins, the um, guy who is one of the, uh, what, what are they, they, we used to go to these uh, stupid conventions for work, not, not here. Well, we went to a couple here too, just in case you think I wasn't blaming them. But we went to these conventions when I was at Edwin Watts and they would bring in these motivational speakers. And it would be some guy who had a gimmick, and he would get up on the stage, and he would give us this wisdom that was going to be life-changing. I don't even remember it. 
Why? Because it's nothing if it's not built in God. If it, if it doesn't have power, yeah, okay, so I sold more golf clubs this year than I did last year, but what does it profit me if I sell more golf clubs and I don't know the very God who made me? And Paul says, you're not going to get God. So God gave us a message that the world considers folly. And by the way, God knew it. He knew that the world was going to look at the cross and think it was folly. He did it on purpose. Why? That he might confound them. That we must all fall on our face and worship a crucified Savior. To the death of every ego. And of every mind, and of every wise thinker and scribe, God says, if you don't put yourself before a blood-stained cross, you are perishing. For Jews, they demand signs. They want miracles. They, they wanted a a Messiah who was coming as a king. But for Greeks, they seek wisdom. They wanted a thought. They wanted, they wanted deep thinkers, man. Sometimes I'm listening to, you know, to, to people talk and they'll say something like, oh, no, that was deep. And I'm thinking, deep? It ain't deep. It looks deep. That's a mile wide but only a quarter inch thick. It is not deep. But the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Now, just, just can I, the word crucified, to, to use this in a way that might be offensive today. Paul says something like, we preach Christ executed. We preach Christ electrocuted. We preach Christ shot by firing squad. We preach Christ beheaded. We preach Christ killed by lethal injection. Because the word crucify was not simply, not simply death, but execution as a criminal. Paul says, if you want to believe me, here's what you have to do. You have to believe this, that God would leave the glory of his throne in heaven, would take on a body, and would submit himself to the law of men and be found guilty. And that's what you expect me to believe? To those who are being saved, it is power. But to those who are called, now, I love that word, to those who are called. You know why he has to use the word called? Because if you stay in your flesh, there's nothing inviting about what I just said. Nothing about a Jew who was crucified as a nuisance 2,000 years ago. There's nothing in that. But we have to be called. Who? Just Jews only? No. Both Jews and Greeks. So only Greeks? Only people who are from Greece? No. That was a dichotomy that was to be a reflection of the entire world. So that means us. Essentially, Paul is saying for Jews and non-Jews. There's really only two types of people in this world. Israel and non-Israel. According to the gospel, read Galatians. But Paul says this, for those who are called, for those whom God has made effectually renewed and regenerated through the power of the Holy Spirit, through this message, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, some of you say, wait a minute, I, I didn't think God was, uh, I thought God was all powerful. Uh, Paul knows that. Paul is saying, in case you're worried about it, 
in case you would laugh and mock at the cross, which is perceived weakness, it is the power of God. You will not mock the cross and stand before God. He's not saying that God has any weakness or any stupidity in him, but he is simply saying that we have perceived the cross as stupidity, and it is the power of God for those who are being saved. And then he says this, he says in the next passage, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God actually shames the wisdom of the world with the church through the message of the cross. By doing what? Hopefully, hopefully in our churches, by being impartial. D.A. Carson pointed this out this week when I was doing my study. By the way, he's a scholar, so he didn't actually like call me, but he pointed it out in his study, and he said this. He said, how many times when we talk about our church do we ever talk about the poor and lowly and humble in our church? I remember I was talking to somebody the other day about some pastor here. And said, oh, that's the pastor who married uh, Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. Great. Great. I'm not so sure he should have. But, but, but what else? Do we ever talk about the lowliness of our church? No. It's kind of silly to do that. Or we talk about the screens that they have. Oh, that's the church where they have that really good restaurant. Why does a church need a restaurant? I've eaten your potluck, and I'm telling you, your potluck is better than any restaurant. That you can find. Next week. Is it next week? We're going to have a Thanksgiving feast. There's going to be food from all over the world. There's going to be griot over there. And fried chicken over there. And, and pickles over here. And there's going to be salads for the weirdos. There's going to be a veritable smorgasbord. We need a restaurant for. Furthermore. The only thing we need to be eating and drinking in this church is the Lord's Supper. But we brag about those things because that's really what matters to us. Ah, you know who goes to that church? Jason Taylor goes to that church. Great. Does he give you any of his money? Well, no. And who cares? You know, I, I would just settle for you telling me I went to this church and I grew deeper in love with Jesus. I, I'll settle for that. I'll settle for that. But we want to collect churches and experiences. And Paul tells them, listen, consider your calling. You weren't nothing when God called you. Not by worldly standards. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. In other words, we didn't pursue you because you had intelligence. And we didn't pursue you because you were powerful. Or because you were noble. That's what some religions do. There are religions today that will pursue people, take Scientology, because they're rich and powerful. You ever seen the Scientology? There's a new Scientology building down in Coconut Grove. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And it's in sleek, rich, coral gables. And Paul says, yeah, but when we called you, you weren't anything. There were, you weren't rich. You were actually scourge now he's speaking to a, a culture where they're divided by class and by the way we're divided by class we just don't tell it we just don't talk about it but we're divided by class too here in america but paul says for god no 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 god actually makes the target of his mission the weak and the ignoble. That's what he says. You say, then God doesn't save rich people? No, no, no. God absolutely saves rich people. But the scripture says here that God chose what is weak. Did he not? God went after those who were low and despised in the world. And the early church was filled with people who meant nothing to the world. They were just Bob and Sue. Or Bobopolis in 
Suopolis. Not that there's anything wrong with Sue, by the way. I, I don't mean anything by that. And for the multiple bobs here. But he just went after plain Jane. And, and so that the, so why? So why did he do that? Well, he tells us, look at, look at the answer. Why did, he, why did he go? Why did he bring in nothing, the nothings of the world? Why did he call the poor? When, when, when uh, John the Baptist wanted to know what, whether or not Jesus was the Messiah, he said, tell him that the poor are hearing the message of the gospel. The poor being preached to. What? What, what is that? God is confounding the wise by choosing those who are foolish by worldly standards. So that, why? That he might bring to naught, says here, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. To rob the rich of their power and their boasting in their money. That's why he does it. To look at the professors of the world who boast in their thinking and in their papers and in the letters that follow their name. As their status before men and their status before God as to why they're better than the rest of us. To look at the people who put up their race above another and simply say, I will choose everyone who is despised. The Bible tells us that even the people of Israel were not much, but they were made much when God chose them. And all of us were nothing. Until God chose us. That's what he says. Why? Why did he do that? For this reason. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's, that's pretty simple. What is he saying that, he, that God hates? God is saying the thing that I, the thing I despise is... That you would desire to supplant me. The created thing would supplant the creator? What did Satan do but tempt Eve to be like God? God says... To his people in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Read the story of Nebuchadnezzar. It was when Nebuchadnezzar was standing out on his balcony looking over his great empire that at that moment God broke him down to a mindless beast. Why? So that he might give credit where credit is due. Glory to God. One of the most despicable things that we do in this country to God, and I am convinced of this, you're going to say it's abortion. While that is absolutely despicable to God, it is even more despicable when we glory over the flesh. See, people who, who go to these concerts and throw themselves at these stars, Those stars put on their pants just like you and I do. They're just tighter. They get sick and die just like you and I do. Many of them die early because they're so depressed. Because the glory that comes from men they know is not deserving of themselves. They know that they don't deserve it. And so they run to hide themselves and bury themselves in sex, in alcohol, in drugs, and in material possessions. But God brings down those who are high and lifted up. 
For thus says the one, that is capitalized one, who is high and lifted up, that is God, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. What does contrite mean? It means in this context, broken up by the knowledge of God's holiness and the knowledge of our sinfulness. That's what it means. Contrite means not to just be someone who receives, but someone who is aware that they have offended holy God. God says, I dwell with those people. You know who my people are? The nothings. I don't hang around you because you got something. I hang around you because you're nothing. And when people see me do something with nothing, they give me the glory. So Paul does not say, don't boast. He doesn't say, never boast. We hear that from time to time. Don't boast. No, Paul says, boast. Yes, boast. But boast in the Lord. Listen, you want to come here? You know, you want to come here for the praise and worship time? Go ahead, boast. Pump it up. You want to throw your hands up? Just don't cause a, just don't cause a scene. Just don't be running the aisles. But, man, you want to dance in your pew and throw your hands up and boast and be like, Yeah, my God is that big. Woo! He's so big, he's forgiven all my sins. He's so big that when I'm dead in that casket, he's going to raise that body to life. He's so big, I believe the foolishness of the gospel of the cross. Boast in him. But don't boast in yourself. The power of God is in the folly of the cross. Paul says, finally, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That's what they did in those days. They used what was called rhetoric. And we still study rhetoric. It's, it is basically a lesson on how to say nothing well. It's, 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 how, to be a, oh, it's how to be a BSer. You say, they, they don't actually teach that, do they? <laughs> You just voted for him last Tuesday. Ha! Oh, I'm going to raise taxes and I'm going to make everybody thinner. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Keep telling me that. And nobody stops to ask, did they ever do what they said? Oh, where, I mean, listen to him. Isn't he pretty? Look at, look at, he combed his hair. And he said something. I like him. And they get everybody stirred up. Hitler, Hitler was saying some of the most wicked stuff ever. But he said it well. And people gobbled it up because they want to be amused. And the word amuse means they want to turn their brain off and let another person think for them. You want this. Paul says, I didn't come like that. I came weak so that you choose God and don't choose man. You choose God, not me. So when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech. Some, this, this hit me. This is what hit me. Because I know, I, I know that I, I sometimes talk well about nothing. I know I do. I, listen, you who are out there in the, the, the church who say things like, hurry up already, pastor. I hear about it. I know, I know I talk a lot, but that's who I am. I know, I know, it's a flaw, I know. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I'll just tell you about my feelings. <laughs> and, and when I read this, I thought, oh my gosh. Now Paul doesn't say, he's not at all saying, don't use tact. Jesus used tact. Paul's just saying, 
when you're saying whatever you're saying, make it about the content, not about the communication. I hear every year, I've been, I've been coming to Northwest Christian Academy graduations forever. And I've heard so many, I've heard good ones and bad ones, commencement speeches. And it's, I'll tell you what the bad ones are. They're usually said by the best speakers. But they're just saying nothing. You can be whatever you want to be. No, you can't. I wish somebody would walk up there and be like, <laughs> in about 10 years, you're going to look back at this and you're going to be like, what a liar. You're going to be in debt. The economy is going to crumble in five years, and you're going to have a house you can't pay for. It's going to go into foreclosure. Your wife's going to leave you. Leave you. You're going to get fat, and you're going to be going to the dermatologist to have your doctor look at the moles on your body. Now go produce. <laughs> but but I but people just gobble it up because they're they're listening with their ears, but not their brain. And Paul says, "Don't come, don't come to me with your ears. Come with your brain. Turn your brain on." The, the Jews that were praised that the most noble of Jews were the ones who, when the message was done, they went home and opened up their Bibles to see if what he said was true. I've got several people in, in here who will, who will critique my message every week, and they'll, they'll talk to me. And, yeah, they're a little bit of a pain in the butt, but I go, I go for them. I go find them because I love it because you know what? They're at least listening don't come here for the performance Paul says I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power Paul is preaching a message that changes people, a real message that changes people. It is the message of a crucified Savior. It is not a message of how to get greener grass. It is not a message about how to have your best life now. It is a message that a Messiah died, and if you believe in him, you have the power of God. You may hope in the promises of God. You have new life. That's it. You go to churches that preach how to get greener grass, you know what you get? Greener grass. You get the knowledge of true green. But you need the power of God. And it doesn't come until the Messiah is proclaimed as on a cross. And Paul says, I came in weakness Paul comes as a criminal to these people. He's been in prison. He's been beaten. And he doesn't come with plausible words of impression. He doesn't speak flowery and nice things. He speaks the truth. And it's a shameful truth. A truth of a crucified Messiah. But in this is the demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? Because what Paul wants at the end of this is not your friendship. He does not want the Corinthians' friendship. He does not want to build a bigger church. He does not want more money in the coffer. What he wants is this. Look at it. He says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He has something so much greater to give than greener grass. In the message of the word of the cross, he has the power of God. Christian, desire a better class of church. Desire a better class of preacher. Don't go to have your ears itched. Go to be confronted with a cross. I ask you this morning, what will shape the ministry of the Northwest Baptist Church? D.A. Carson says, modern Western evangelicalism is deeply infected with the virus of triumphalism and the resulting illness destroys humility, minimizes grace. When, when, listen, when humility is destroyed, there's no more room for grace. When you tell Johnny he's a good boy all the time, when your pastor is constantly telling you there's nothing wrong, then there's never any need for grace and you won't be saved without it. 
you need to be told this morning, and I'm going to tell you just so you get what you should have come for. You are dead in your trespasses and sin until God makes you alive in Christ. You're dead. And God says, you have nothing for me this morning. I have something for you. Would you receive it? He says, we offer our culture, this is Carson, offers far too much homage to the money and influence and wisdom of our day. What will shape the ministry of the Northwest Baptist Church? Will it be our buildings? Will we brag about our baptismal pools? Will it be our people? Will we live in the days of having superstars here and the days of nice people and having so many nice people here and how kind we are? Is that all people will say about us? Not that we shouldn't care about the sort of buildings we have or the type of people we are, but there's something higher to desire. What will shape our ministry? Will it be the pastors? Will we brag about who preached in our pulpits? About the times when MacArthur was here? About the times when great pastors like Jim Summers were, were here? And Homer Lindsay? And whatever you think about me? Is that, is that all this is? Is that all this church is? Is it going to be our programs? Man, we used to have a wanna. Oh, man, there were kids. And we had mats. And we had games. And we had little cars that we made. And we, we, we won all the races. We took our kids up to North Florida. And our kids beat everybody and everything. But, but it, what about the times when we, we were winning state championships? Every time I looked up, Randy had another ring on. Boom, 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 boom. Is that going to be it? Or, or, and this is really an option, will we choose as a church to allow the cross to shape us? Of course, we should be excellent in all that we do. I'm, I don't want you to say, oh yeah, I don't come anymore because I'm allowing the cross to shape the ministry. No. But who's judging what true excellence is? That's the question. Do we vacuum our floors and do all of this so that we might be given homage from men? Are we trying to impress the world or God? Our passage makes it clear this morning that God's wisdom is in the foolishness of the cross, not in the power of the pastors. Or in the blessedness of the programs. So I ask you this question. Will Northwest Baptist Church. Be committed to the cross of Christ. As the very thing that shapes it. This shames. This passage shames the internal competition. That exists among Christians and churches. Where bigger means better. Where more money means more meaning. But. Some of us right now are running after greater notoriety that comes with being associated with churches that are bigger and better. But if the church has the power of God and the word of the cross, and that's all they have, is that enough to satisfy your soul? What I know is this. Northwest really is like the church at Corinth. Not many of us have a lot of money. Some of us do, but not many of us do. We're not in the fanciest location. Sheesh, that's for sure. We don't have a lot of programs, and our facilities are not spectacular by any stretch of the imagination. Every time I look up, we're replacing another roof that's going bad. We can't do new things because we're still trying to take care of the facilities that are decaying, that are dilapidated. 
Because when the church, this church, this beautiful premises was built years and years ago, it was cheaper and the church had the money to make it glorious. But today we don't have that. We have to scrimp and save every penny we have to just do the basic things. We sit at a crossroads, though, as a church. And we have to ask ourselves, every individual, whether or not we're going to choose better and bigger by the world standards over simply having the wisdom of the cross of Christ. I promise you this. You can have the power of God in this church without a dime. But you have to pursue the cross. You have to pursue the message of the truth. And don't run after the worldly wisdom. Run after the foolishness of the cross. Let's pray. Father, help us. This is a tall task. We're going to drive by, per by churches that are bigger and better. We're going to get in our cars and we're going to hear conversations on the radio that seem to have the answers to life and to its greatest question. That if we buy this object or if we take this class that we'll have greater meaning in our lives. But your word tells us that the real power is to simply reflect on the cross. To accept the message that all our sins were taken away on an old rugged cross. And that to those who believe in Jesus, we are being saved. Help us to forget what the world calls foolish and to just love and boast in what you have called the power of God. Amen.